1: questions, including what are we missing when we work remotely, or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G pod wherever you get your podcasts. I would simply make the world a happier place where less bad things happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like Dylan's approach to this.
1: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I'm joined this week by Vox senior correspondent Herman Lopez. Hello and policy reporter Jerusalem Demsis. Hi there. So Jerusalem and I were just in England for a conference, which was the first time either of us have really left the country since COVID started. And for me, at least, it was a real reminder of just how much of our lives are still different now than from what they were pre-pandemic. So for for every single part of this trip, from the, the cab to the airport, to waiting for my flight, to the flight itself, to being on the tube in London after the flight, everyone was required to have a mask on. We were required to take a COVID test within two days of landing, and we couldn't leave the country and return to America without a recent test showing we were COVID negative. And as people who've been doing this, like everybody else for the last 20 months, it raised the obvious question of when, if ever, we're going to get back to normal, or normal as we understood it in 2019. The biggest sub-question here is when kids can stop wearing masks at school. That's been a a huge barrier to returning to anything like life pre-COVID for teachers and kids and parents, as has many schools' policy of mandatory quarantines for, for kids with symptoms. And it's starting to change now that kids over five can be vaccinated, but it's still a contentious fight. So if you're listening to this and you have a kid who's five or older, please vaccinate them. And the question is broader than schools as well. The TSA has required masks for trains and planes until January. And so a big question now is, should the policy be extended beyond that? What about for subways and buses or uh, cab rides and Ubers? Should each of these institutions be making these decisions on their own, or should there be some kind of like a coordinated reopening plan? So I want to start with Herman. You've covered vaccine and mask mandates for a while now. So what's your take on what the right pace might be at this point to, to return to normal?
2: I think a key point there is at this point, because right now things are not going well still in the U.S., it's easy for, especially, like, I'm vaccinated, so I personally do not think that much about the threat of COVID to my day-to-day life anymore because I'm vaccinated. But at the same time, if you look at the numbers, things just are not going well. We're still at 75,000 cases a day. Recently, that was going down, but it's not no longer going down, so that's a bad trend. We're still at more than 1,200 deaths a day, which is extremely high. It's the equivalent to basically four times the dru- all drug overdoses deaths in the U.S. Or 20 times the murders in the U.S. Like These are extremely, shockingly high numbers. So it's worth emphasizing here, the vast majority of these deaths are the unvaccinated. So the vaccines work. But at the same time, I mean, you see these numbers and you, you think like, you know, maybe some continued caution is appropriate, especially in uh, like a school setting, because obviously schools have had some of the biggest disruptions. I mean, we talk a lot about masks in schools, but like some schools are essentially shutting down for like days or even more than a week still because of their mandatory quarantine rules. Like, this is really disruptive, especially after we've seen like the learning loss data over the last year and a half that is just showing that like these disruptions are really bad for kids. But I think at the same time, it's also true that most people are just kind of over COVID in the US. Like, they're ready to move on. I mean, this might sound weird because like on social media, I think people who are very cautious are overrepresented. And I think maybe in our audience, that, that might be true as well. But like, you can just go to about any place where people gather and life, is back to normal. I, I live in downtown Cincinnati, like near a lot of bars and restaurants. It's constantly packed on weekends. Like everything is bustling. People are ready to just, you know, party, drink, do all of that good stuff. I also think just practically speaking, given that most deaths are the unvaccinated, I, I don't want to sound like cold about this, but like at a certain point when we're asking like continued restrictions for masking and, uh, you know, quarantine in schools or whatever, other things people might be doing, you're asking vaccinated people to protect unvaccinated people by avoiding doing certain things, because that that's the real risk, right? Like that's the the biggest problem right now in terms of COVID is if somebody who's unvaccinated gets sick, they're much more likely to die than than somebody who's vaccinated, and that's really the population that's most vulnerable right now. The population's being protected by these measures the most, and I think I just think that's unsustainable for all sorts of reasons. Like, once you get a vaccine, like, a lot of people are going to think, why should I keep warping my life for this? Especially if unvaccinated people are, are unvaccinated by choice. It just becomes a harder political and, I think, social sell.
3: I was looking at the... um CAP had a national and state plan to end the coronavirus crisis that we talked about on The Weeds. It was Ezra and Matt, like, several months ago in another lifetime in 2020. This report came out in April 2020. And, like, on this subject of, like, you know, the strategy we've pursued has been a vaccine strategy, essentially. But, you know, at the time, one of the things that they, like, step two for their strategy to end the coronavirus crisis, and a lot of these people who wrote this plan are now in the Biden administration, includes, like, Nara Tanden and Topher Spiro and other people. Number two was ramping up testing and production of personal protective equipment and also ramping up testing equipment as well. This has been one of the really Big failures of both Trump and to this point, Biden administration is that, you know, if you have, as Herman mentioned, this un- unvaccinated population, you know, you can have the dual strategy of like trying to get them vaccinated and also having a massive testing apparatus and tracing apparatus to make sure that you're still containing any outbreaks that do occur. ProPublica had this good um, investigation that like looked into the kind of the failures of our ability as a country to ramp up a testing apparatus. You know, everyone I think probably remembers on the show in February of 2020 the CDC took weeks to develop its own test. And then it was like falsely flagging other viruses. It was like a really bad test in a lot of ways. And it like kind of hampered our speed. But it's been like over a year since February 2020. And the article writes that both the Trump and Biden administration essentially have banked on vaccines, putting an end to the pandemic. And basically, there's just like one company, Abbott Laboratories, which has dominated the market. Uh, Its tests account for like 75% of US retail sales. There's not a bunch of competition here where there are a bunch of tests being authorized. When I was in the UK, like friends of mine had like dozens of tests just sitting in their homes. Here in the US, there's been two or three times where I've tried to go get tests at a CVS. It's taken me several hours. I've had to go to like several different pharmacies. There's some days where I've not been able to find any available in the D.C. metro area. And that's, you know, insane. And at this point, it's like Biden administration has tried to to kind of pivot and add, add more testing capacity. But I think that's one of the things that becomes very confusing with this time period because we're at this point where like, A significant amount of people are vaccinated. I think I looked at today and for one dose for people above 18, it's 80.9 percent of people are vaccinated. One dose for people above 65, that's 98.5 percent. I don't really know what you're supposed to ask people to do at this point other than like they got vaccinated. You didn't provide tests to make sure that other people couldn't be spreaders and you're not mandating it for a lot of places. So like people are going to go live their lives. It's about to be Thanksgiving. It's going to happen. And I think that has to be where the policy conversation begins.
1: Yeah, I, I think one dynamic that that very much characterizes the way this debate is happening right now that seems like it will change very rapidly is that people have all these carve outs of sort of types of people that they're very nervous about who aren't currently protected by vaccines. So some of this is immunocompromised people who who might not be medically eligible for a vaccine. Some of that is children. I think the bulk of it is is concerned about children. Um, And we're still a little ways away from kids under five being able to be vaccinated. I think there are sort of some dosing questions and also the FDA is just slow in the way it's been slow this whole pandemic. And so the the earliest I've I've heard they can get those out is probably going to be early next year. And so if you're in a a school, traditional school, your pre-K program, that's not going to help you. But in a few months, we'll be in a point where like literally everyone from cradle to grave is eligible for a vaccine. And I think there will still be some push for out of respect for immunocompromised people and and people who can't get the vaccine to take on sort of masking restrictions. I don't know how much weight that's going to carry. Like historically, mostly for, for the worst, people in disabled communities like that have not had a ton of political power. And while I wish that was a bigger part of the conversation, it's been completely dominated by the discussion about children. But I think it's also something where in other cases for other vaccines, the assumption is that we'll get to something close enough to herd immunity that people in that situation are protected anyway. That if like 98% of the population is is vaccinated against measles, that's pretty good protection for people who can't themselves get like a, a chemical inoculation. It's sort of a social inoculation rather than a pharmaceutical one, and. It just doesn't look like we're going to get there for for immunocompromised people. Like 81% is is amazing for a vaccine that didn't exist a year ago, um, but it's also far from what you would need to have a, an adequate level of protection for people in that situation.
3: I was really interested in the immunocompromised point, Dylan. I was looking this up during the show, and uh, my understanding is like the... Clinical trials did not include immunocompromised patients, so there's a lot of like concern about, obviously, efficacy, and it could really crimple someone's health if they're immunocompromised to take the vaccine. But I looked at the AMA, and they are recommending that immunocompromised patients get the vaccine. Obviously, it's different for each individual person and like, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not telling you to go do that. But I am saying that it it does seem to me that it's possible that immunocompromised individuals are able to get the vaccine, even though it's not as efficacious for them. Um, Our show producer, Sophie LeMoulin's mother, who's immunocompromised, did get the vaccine, she's telling us. Uh, But so I think that's interesting. Herman. I don't know if you know more about that, but I feel like that is like a really big sticking point here of like, this is a very vulnerable population through no fault of their own. They're not able to actually get uh, or they may not be able to get the protection that the rest of us are able to get. And so what can we do for them other than try to get more people vaccinated?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's like two things going on here. One is that immunocompromised people, there is some evidence that suggests that like they just need boosters more than the rest of the population would for just to make sure that their immune systems have extra layers of protection that the rest of us just, just don't need. The second thing, though, and I'm not saying I agree with this because I, I think in, in some ways it's, it's just morally wrong the way people think about this, but it is – also the case that like a lot of the population doesn't worry about the immunocompromised because if you start thinking of it that way they then like when is life going to back to normal right like that is the dominant question for a lot of people's minds because if the immunocompromised are always going to be vulnerable to covid just by virtue of not benefiting from the vaccines and you know how their immune systems work then i mean that's going to be true forever like no amount of boosters necessarily might achieve the the level of protection that we'd like to see. But I think like Dylan was getting at this really drives home why just the key problem here is not enough of the population is vaccinated. In an ideal world, I mean basically everyone who could get vaccinated would be vaccinated, but but barring that like 90 plus percent would go a long way in terms of, you know, avoiding covid's worst potential like its spread and its infection. And I think it's worth emphasizing here too because Something that's lost in this conversation over the past few months. I think people have developed this idea that the vaccines aren't working anymore because of Delta or because they're waning. And that's just really not true. It's it's important to emphasize that. Now, there is some evidence that protection against any infection wanes, but that includes like the mildest disease possible, like low, very, very low symptoms, like mild fever, something you'd see with a cold or a flu. And even then, you still get some protection from infection. There are good studies ab- about this from New York and the VA health system that we'll link in the show notes. Another aspect of this is the vaccines really do protect against transmission. There are studies from the Netherlands and the UK showing this. Like they actually do reduce the amount of virus transmitted by a vaccinated person. So they still help there. And Taking both of those points aside, the vaccines have mostly held up against hospitalization and death. Like we're still talking 80 to 90 plus percent protection against hospitalization and death, which when we're talking about a a disease here, like the reason we started worrying about this pandemic is because it's killing people. Like that's a primary concern. Otherwise, I I mean, nobody wants to get sick or get thrown into bed for like a a couple weeks because they have a high fever and and just start exhausted and all of that. But if the biggest concern is, at the end of the day, death, and the vaccines have held up there, they have taken care of that. I just pulled some numbers from states here, but in general, across the country, the unvaccinated are 11 times as likely to die from COVID. That includes with the Delta variant. Um, And some data from states, in September and October, 81% of COVID deaths were unvaccinated people. And in Virginia, through October, only 0.01% of the vaccinated have died from COVID. So if if you're taking those numbers, like, yes, the vaccines are not perfect, but it's important to emphasize that no vaccine is, but they are still really holding up. And it makes it all the more frustrating, I think, that just not enough of the population is taking these shots. Like, if, if they did, we would be in a, a dramatically different place than we are today.
1: Those numbers in some ways kind of underestimate how good vaccines are for you in that, I think if if we hypothetically, and we won't get this, but if we hypothetically had a world where 100% of people of all ages were vaccinated against COVID, I think we would see a reduction in deaths much greater than the like 81% of people who died who were unvaccinated just because you wouldn't have unvaccinated people walking around spreading it and and sort of transmission would fall dramatically, which in turn would vastly reduce the number of vaccinated people who are acquiring this and dying from it. I guess I wanted to ask you guys about the viability of vaccine mandates going forward because that seems like politically like the clear path forward. That this is the the Biden administration's strategy is is using OSHA to to pressure employers into to mandating vaccines. They're currently getting sued by state governments for trying to do that. And while I get the sense that like in the kind of like evidence minded policy public health circles that the three of us hang out in. Like don't mandate masks, mandate vaccines. To to quote the headline of a Harmon article from a while back, is kind of the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom in a lot of like red states seems to be don't mandate anything, <laughs> and and I I have no idea how to get through there. Like presumably our best bet is some kind of of federal mandate like Biden's, but doing it through employers is a little janky, and a lot of people aren't employed, both unemployed people, but also like stay-at-home parents, uh, retired people, et cetera, And I I don't know of any good ways to overcome the kind of culture war aspects that have led even some Democratic governors like Laura Kelly in Kansas has been like vocally against vaccine mandates of any kind. And I don't know sort of how to overcome that as long as this is sort of a polarized and partisan issue.
2: If I'm being honest with you, I just don't see our vaccination rates going up much more than they have been i hope i'm wrong i mean one way i could see this playing out is that there is a big fall and winter surge and that scares people and way more people get the shot that is something we saw with the delta surge but like that's the worst way to get more people vaccinated because that means bringing on a bunch of extra and unnecessary death and just COVID cases and general illness and suffering but otherwise i don't I just don't see how things are going to change much. I mean, like we've been trying this like now for the better part of the year, we've been trying to persuade people to get vaccinated. If you look at Kaiser's polling on this, they've done polling since the start of the vaccination campaign about people's attitudes toward vaccination. It has been about one in five people will not get vaccinated at all or unless it's required consistently. That number just has not really budged despite all of these persuasion efforts. And there's also studies suggesting that like even incentives, like financial incentives, just have not really driven up vaccination rates to the level you'd like. So I don't know. I, I think that like I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about getting our vaccination rates up going forward. And I think in the end, going back to normal is gonna be to some extent the vaccinated saying, well, the unvaccinated made their choice. They're now going to, to take this higher risk. And meanwhile, the vaccinated are going to enjoy like suffering and dying less from covid and like that's not the world i want i would want everybody to get vaccinated and be protected but it seems like the the most realistic reality otherwise we're going to be trapped in this kind of situation for for the conceivable future
3: but i think broadly to me i think the big problem here is just that there's not been articulated for like a long time what the end point is supposed to be like the idea can't be that it's eradication right like in World history that we know of, like the world has eradicated exactly one disease through vaccination, and that was like smallpox. It took 200 years from when Edward Jenner like somewhat unethically uh, put like a cowpox sore from a milkmaid onto a nine-year-old and then like said that like it saved him from smallpox after he exposed this nine-year-old to smallpox several times. Anyway, probably the FDA wouldn't wouldn't allow that. So somewhere between that and what the FDA is doing now is the level of, of risk taking what we need. But anyway, my point is more just like that. It seems like the end point here can't be like we need to get to vision zero for a COVID. That seems like not going to happen. And you know what we had at the very beginning was that it was like, we're trying to flatten the curve. And we need to have some kind of understanding of like, is there a benchmark of number of vaccinations? Is it a benchmark of now at this point, it's uh, 100% easy to get a test. There are mandates in public squares and also vaccination rates have reached this level. And we've given kids the ability to get vaccinations for X amount of time. But I think the hard part is that for a long time, what we've articulated to people is that to be a good citizen, a good COVID citizen, it means understanding that it's not a big harm to you. It's not a big harm for you, Max. It's not a big harm for you to stay home. You're protecting people. And unless you are 100% committed to basically um, removing most of the things that make life enjoyable, you are being unethical. And that was extremely polarizing. A lot of people took that very seriously during the last couple of years, and they isolated themselves from their family, and you know, uh, and they were able to do so because a lot of those people were knowledge workers and were higher income. And then a lot of people said that was like an insane burden, especially because they were already working in person, and so were already assuming a ton of risk by going into restaurants and bars or whatever it was, and having to work in person. And so I think the goal was always very oddly articulated as like not reasonable and not also reflective of what a large part of the population was already having to do. And this was a big thing during the holidays last year where people who were being asked to be essential workers and basically put themselves up for exposure in grocery stores every single day for not reasonable amount of pay and endure a bunch of vitriol being put on them by customers were also being told not to go to the holidays as they watched their elected officials break a bunch of the COVID laws. So it's just like, this whole thing has been very odd to me where we still now at this point, two years out, I don't know what it means to the Biden administration or to the Trump administration or to any government official for the pandemic to be over. And until that becomes clear. I don't really know how you expect people to work towards that goal effectively.
1: On this incredibly cheery note, I think we we should take <laughs> a break. We'll ponder these dark realities. But but when we get back, uh, we're going to think a little bit about what life will look like if we ever get to the point where where COVID is sort of controlled to the point where we can treat it like a normal illness. And what, if anything, about our lives will be permanently different from what they were like before the pandemic. So stay tuned.
4: They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent... and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: And we're back. Before we were talking about Jerusalem and I going to England, and I think throughout COVID, I've thought a lot about the relatively short periods of my life that I spent traveling in in Asia since my in-laws were living out there. And one thing that really struck me about that was that people were wearing masks in public just a lot more than in the us or or europe and it it seems like a lot of that had to do with the legacy of sars which hit asia and particularly hong kong and china just much much harder than the rest of the world but whatever the reason that was probably a good thing it seems strange to me coming in as an american that people were just walking around on on the street uh wearing masks but it probably had serious health benefits in terms of, of avoiding flus and colds, other more serious respiratory diseases, all the things we had to worry about even before COVID hit. And so one thing I wanted to, to take some time for us to talk about is just how much of the new normal after the pandemic should be different from from the old to normal pre-pandemic. So maybe we should adopt that cultural practice of just having masking as a, a kind of permanent activity or at least a, a kind of permanent option for people. So, Jerusalem, how different do you think things ought to be either culturally or in terms of policy than than they were in 2019?
3: I don't see a lot of personal behaviors actually changing realistically. It seems great to me that, like, masks could reduce my ability to get colds. It seems like during the winter seasons, uh, there's, like, low effort for me to have a mask on when I'm in public transit or when I'm in, like, highly trafficked indoor areas and You know, I could just do that easily and I probably will because I hate getting sick. But I think that to me, the most interesting thing that I could see shifting is firstly, that we have a lot of the technological and policy infrastructure slash norms to support future pandemic action like right now, like a lot of knowledge workers now have like the ability to understand what it means to work from home. It means that you have a computer and we figured out Zoom. We all do these Zoom meetings together, like people figure out how to engage with their teams on Slack or in different ways. And also the norm of like, if there's this massive health risk to congregating, it's not worth it for knowledge workers to be in the office. And I think companies will be much more uh, sympathetic and quick to um, send people to work from home. And I think that's also true for the federal government as well. I mean, we didn't get automated stabilizers like a lot of us were hoping for in the past year, that anytime there was kind of an economic downturn, we would have um, subsequent federal fiscal action, like more um, stimulus checks or unemployment insurance or anything like that to support the economy during a recessionary period. But what we did get is that, um, and I think this is underappreciated often, is that both Republicans and Democrats spent like an insane amount of money to support the economy. Like, I mean, I just can't even process it. The idea if you had told me that like the Republican Party with a Republican-controlled Senate and Republican president would have passed the CARES Act, would have passed a second stimulus bill after they had lost the election as well. I mean, it's just like actually quite astonishing that this happened. And I think that that's something that can't be overappreciated here is that in the future, it is much more in the uh, policy interest and also understanding of what is possible for the federal government to do for them to spend this kind of money to support people, these kinds of checks stimulus checks and things like that i think that kind of norm is is really important that's changed
2: i think on uh, on the masking in front i mean i could see people more people just wearing masks in the future like that that'll probably be i don't think it'll be widespread and normal it definitely will not be universal but like personally i you know i, I feel pretty safe and i'm vaccinated so like at, at the end of the day i'm not freaking out about this but i'm probably gonna wear a mask when i go like to the grocery store or something or a pharmacy or anything along those lines it's like pretty low like, basically involves making no sacrifice whatsoever other than slapping something on my face. I, like At the same time, like, I don't know. I'm also not going to be too worried if other people around me aren't wearing a mask. Because, like I said, I'm vaccinated. It's mostly for my own personal protection at that point. So, I could see more people doing that, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of how it works in Asia. You definitely do not see. Like, when I when I went to Japan... Uh, A couple of years ago, it was not universal, but you did see people wearing masks here and there. I think a useful way to start thinking about this is just asking yourself, if you're not doing something now, are you going to be doing it in a few years? Like, what will change between now and then that will compel you to do something that you're not doing now? And I think that's helpful because when you start thinking of it this way, it's like, if you're already a vaccinated person you probably do not have to be freaking out as much because like unless you're worried about cases in your local community which is something you're you should be worried about but like i mean your personal risk level is probably not going to change all that much now that you're vaccinated and i'm just saying this because it does not seem to be like the consensus on social media and in a lot of like news reporting but like if you ask just about any expert at this point they will all tell you that covid is never going to get to zero and like it will be endemic and i don't know that that idea just has not seemed to pierce through in a lot of circles but it's like really important to emphasize because that means that the way we start thinking about this now is how like how to live with covid instead of just continuously trying these essentially failed efforts to bring it down to zero and you know something like continued masking or just not going to work when you're sick, like things that we probably should have been doing before, <laughs> but like we definitely did not. That, that to me makes sense as something that we'll be doing going forward. But otherwise, I don't know. I, I really also just see have a very hard time seeing Americans changing much of any of their behaviors in like significantly big ways, just because, I mean, we've seen from the past two years that people are already really, really opposed, even during the middle of a pandemic to changing their behaviors much. So I think the reality is people will probably snap back to whatever the pre-pandemic normal was for them as quickly as possible. And in fact, I would say a lot of Americans, even most Americans already are there. And like the people who are still being cautious are, are probably in the minority at this point. Yeah, no, and
1: I think we, we've we've been talking about the people who are still being cautious, I think, in, in part because those are our social circles, yeah. um, that, that but this is such a sort of polarized activity and people in our demographic of sort of broadly left of center college graduates in their 20s and 30s, I think, as, especially people with young kids tend to be very, very cautious about this. And it's it's been sort of a tricky thing to talk about in that I think like you Herman I'm I'm probably much more cautious than the median American and much less cautious than the median American of like my demographic profile. Um, that, you know it's funny? Like, that's
3: like not like what's happening in my social circles at all. Like people are like treating the vaccine like it's liquid gold. They're like nothing can happen to me. <laughs> I have it in my system. I'm good. I can't tell if that's just like. My age group does not have children yet, or <laughs> what's I going think on? it
1: might be that you're you're young, and and Herman and I are near death, yeah, and, and so <laughs> That's all true. Of, all of our friends are starting to have babies, and it seems like totally untethered to the actual risk of of hospitalization or death that under five year olds are like on every conceivable metric this the safest and least at risk of of COVID of any demographic group, but I think like correctly and for very strong evolutionary reasons, people are very protective of their children. <laughs> um, and I think it does indicate that we're, we're sort of thinking about this in a different risk framework than we think about sort of other endemic illnesses. So like every year or at least every year before everyone masked up for 2020, like some share of kids died of the flu and uh, some share of kids died of like bronchitis or, or other pretty common, rarely serious sort of illnesses like that. And There might have been some people whose reaction to that was we should should take more control measures and try to get those numbers down the overall attitude i would say was more like oh that's a tragedy but you know stuff happens and just start moving right along and i don't want us to get like that callous about covid going forward but as herman says we're not getting to zero this will continue to be endemic and We've for a year been been taking kind of emergency measures on the logic that we can do that for a while, that at least for like a year, maybe two years, we can like seriously disrupt our lives uh, for the sake of broader public health and and we can kind of sustain that. But like no one thinks we can sustain that indefinitely. And so at some point you get to the like conversation similar to the conversation about whether highway speed limits should be 55 or 65, where Like, there are jerks like me who think it should be 55 because that would save a ton of lives. Um, And then there's an equally vocal segment of people who think that's super lame and that that life is not worth living unless you can drive 65. (laughs) And uh, like, we have a healthy democratic debate over, over those kinds of risks that is not sort of governed by the same, like, we have to get everything down to zero mentality that we've been living with for the last like 18 months or so.
3: Yeah. I think that raises a good point about like just the diversity and risk tolerance that exists in the United States. And just like, I, I, I would say that it's not that anyone was making, well, regular people were making the, uh, the calculation that, oh, it's it's okay that a few kids are dying of bronchitis or the flu. I think it just like wasn't salient as an issue that would ever be addressed in like a political or governmental way. Like I think often the way people think about illness is like, this is a tragic thing that strikes and like, what could you really do about it? And my hope is that with COVID, we're getting to shift to a framework of Understanding that public health is also a thing that the government should be charged with and that, you know, there is relatively low cost measures, like just PSA campaigns about flu shots, like could increase the amount of people getting flu shots or like different things about like how many people in your community are getting sick, like news reporting, like the way that they report about the weather in your community. Like what is the case count of the of of dangerous flu strains in your area and stuff like that feels like to me it could be a really like pretty monumental shift in how people think about and engage with um, transmissible diseases. And that is like can be a really good thing.
2: Obviously telling people that they have to learn to live with COVID is easier said than done like the idea that you know Jerusalem was talking about this but like the idea that like you you were told to like follow these precautions for the last year and a half or you're a bad person and now you're told like hey you're vaccinated yes the risk is not going to be zero but like you know you can start moving back to normal like that is a really difficult concept it makes sense that people uh can't wrap their heads around it and honestly this has just been You know, the the conversation around COVID has obviously been polarized, and I don't think we need to rehash how Republicans have really screwed up all their messaging. I mean, Trump was, like, the single worst voice on COVID imaginable, really, throughout the past year and a half. But, like, on the flip side of that, I think, like, the Democratic messaging has been not equally awful, but pretty bad in significant ways around this. And what I mean by this is, like, for much of the past year and a half, Democrats were acting like they were pursuing a COVID zero strategy. But they, if you look at their actual policy proposals, literally nothing that they were actually proposing would ever have gotten us anywhere. Even if people listened to their recommendations, that is not what, like we would have not gotten to COVID zero. I mean, you look at the countries that took COVID zero seriously, talking New Zealand, talking Australia, talking China, when they locked down that meant lock down. That did not mean like, you know, you 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 can only go to the grocery store twice a week or something like that or you can still visit your friends in bubbles. It means you do not leave your home and if you do leave your home, there are like potentially serious legal consequences for it. Obviously, nobody in the Democratic Party wanted to suggest that. I think there are like reasonable political reasons for like why they did not want to do that. But like, it it creates this weird, you know, kind of, dichotomy where they were at once saying we're going to do covid zero but not really doing anything to actually pursue that goal we talked earlier about off-ramps so like how there are no goals here for like what our covid policy is that's still a huge problem I, I think like when we're talking about like australia for example they did have clear goals they said look we're going to try to get this to this case level and then we'll open up again by and large the u.s has just not done that like the states have not done that federal policymakers have not really done that and like to the extent some places have done it in the u.s usually they like tend to go back on their goals there are loopholes everywhere i mean i know that like some states have actually said like hey we won't open up until we get to this case rate once they realized they could not get that low they would just say ah we're going to open up anyway like there was absolutely no evidence like you saw this in a bunch of democratic states over the past year and a half no evidence that like things would work out and in fact usually they did not work out this was a big cause of the winter and fall surges last year and so now you're you've essentially told a, a large segment of the population who like sympathizes with democratic leaders like hey you have to pursue COVID zero and you never were really doing that. And now, all of a sudden you're telling them, "Never mind, we're not doing that anymore. It, it really, from that perspective, it, it's not surprising that a lot of people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around moving back to normal. it It really has been like a disastrous communications failure. and it, it I, I should say, I think it's continued through the Biden administration. There's still not a lot of clarity on like when things will return to normal because they have not really set goals about like what returning to normal means.
3: I was looking for historical reference for um, what the how this is kind of like played out previously. So I was looking at the most popular one is the Black Death, of course, which kills more than a third of Europe's population, like 25 million people. But I didn't realize just how long of a period of time like the Black Death was like going on, like for 400 years, essentially, there are outbreaks going on in Europe. Like it's 1347 to 1352, which is like the main like 25 million people dying. But then like, Hundreds of years later, 1656, like, two-thirds of Naples and Genoa die. In 1665, a fourth of London citizens die. Vienna loses 100,000 people in 1679. Moscow loses the same number in 1770. Like, this goes on for hundreds of years. And the Black Death is, like, still around, technically. I think there was, like, a Los Angeles, like, outbreak in, like, the 1980s. 80s or something oh sorry no 1920s 1920s like 30 people died of an outbreak in los angeles after a man like handles a dead rat and there's research that there's the most plague endemic countries are madagascar congo and the peru so anyway my point is more though that like during this time period like people are like that's what like living i mean obviously COVID is a lot less bad than the plague, and we have a vaccine for it. But, like, living with a COVID, va- like, at this level, if we don't change, like, the rates of vaccination, especially if we don't change them significantly for developing nations, is just bunches of outbreaks happening randomly and people dying. And I think one aspect of this that, like, I remember we were talking about a lot early in the pandemic, but, like, kind of petered off was just, a lot of the xenophobia that sort of occurs when these sort of flare ups happen. I mean, we all remember like the desire to call this like the Chinese flu or like Kung flu and stuff like that, that uh, Trump and other other Republicans were saying. But this was not just um, happening in the U.S. Like This was happening all over Europe. I mean, in Asia, there are people who are talking about when they would travel, stuff like this would happen to them all the time where people would react really hostilely to them. Like this is obviously not new. People are really afraid of of. uh people carrying disease and they're willing to extrapolate that fear onto their other xenophobic beliefs that they already hold. Um, I mean, and it, it can get really, really bad for people. I mean, in during the Black Death, like European Christians blamed the Jews for the plague and there were like a bunch of massacres and violence that happened, which obviously is really terrible, but also is something that we're going to have to deal with in the future if we don't actually have an end point kind of strategy for how people can stay safe if they're vaccinated and if they're not vaccinated. Because as Perman said, there's going to be some significant part of the population is not vaccinated. We need to give them test and trace. And if there are flare ups in a community where there are foreigners coming in, like, what are you going to do with that situation to make sure that it doesn't kind of erupt into kind of xenophobic violence and stuff like that? And like, this is not, I think, a hypothetical at all. Like we saw over the last year, there's a lot of reporting about increase in Asian American hate crimes going on that's been pretty well corroborated at least in places like California and in New York City, um, that there was a real and and persistent spike in hate crimes happening to people, like physical assaults. And that to me is like an aspect of this. I think is like we just kind of stopped talking about it. There's like some money put towards like hate crime legislation, but like there's not a lot of evidence that's going to do anything to actually prevent harm happening to people. And to me, living with COVID is living with how do we, in an increasingly globalized world where pandemics are more and more likely, reduce the chance that we're going to have these kinds of xenophobic attacks happening to people in our lifetime if we're not able to actually get to zero in any reasonable time frame.
1: Now that we're talking about increasing violence, that <laughs> seems like a, a good moment to transition to our white paper. But, but first, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to, to hear from Herman about some new research about how expanding access to mental health care can help to reduce crime. Welcome back. So this week's white paper is about crime. So I'm going to let Herman, who's our resident crime guy,
2: take the lead in explaining it. Herman, take it away.
3: I thought you were to say resident criminal for a second. I was like, <laughs> oh my God.
2: No. I love crimes, but I do not commit them. So I'm the crime guy. That's that's my name. Gotcha. So the study uh, it was published by MBER, Love Them. And the authors were Monica Deza, Tan Lu, and Johanna Catherine McLean. And basically they they focused on county office-based mental health care providers. So if you think of like, you know, a trip to the psychologist or a psychiatrist, the standard trip to their office, that that's kind of like the, the the kind of setting we're talking about here. And then they compared like the access to these places at the county level to the cost of juvenile arrests. They focus on cost of juvenile arrests, and I think this makes sense. But essentially they they didn't look at arrests themselves because In general, we care more about violent crime than we do about property crime, and murders just have much higher costs to society than, you know, somebody getting their iPhone stolen. So that's kind of like why they look at the cost, because this can be more representative of the actual damage done by crimes. Anyway, from 1999 to 2016, they found that 10 more offices led to 2.3% to 2.6% reduction in juvenile arrest costs. So just a pretty direct correlation between more access to mental health care and a reduction in juvenile arrest costs. And there was also a similar decrease in juvenile arrest, but, like, you could see it in the data. It was a bit noisy, so it's, like, hard to make too much of it. But, like, the, the juvenile arrest costs held up. One thing that I thought was interesting is the findings were stronger for older male and white juveniles. I think the older and male makes sense because, you know, older teenagers are probably more likely to be committing crimes especially boys so that makes sense but the white is interesting to me because it probably speaks to like a racial disparity in access to mental health care which is not good for all sorts of reasons so that, that that's just one thing to keep in mind and this findings were also strongest for like violent crime so this is like getting some of the big benefits um it should be said like 2.3 to 2.6% like this is not going to turn the US into Japan in terms of crime like these are pretty modest effects but like that kind of makes sense because we're talking about office-based care. So we're talking about people going to an office, usually voluntarily. Like, these are not people who are necessarily suffering from the worst mental illness at the time they're going to get mental health care, right? Like, they're at least able to get transportation and get to one of these offices to begin with. That probably suggests a bit about their mental health. And also, these offices are just not as intense as, like, the old stereotypical state psychiatric wards that people think about. So... The, the treatment is not going to be as hands-on as, as those kinds of settings were. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, like, look, you see this reduction in juvenile arrest costs. And also, the authors looked at, at this. They also found, a like, you know, benefits to actual mental health, which is good because that's what we would want out of mental health care to begin with. And, like, that that resulted in fewer suicide deaths on average. So, I mean, to me, it's it's a pretty positive study. Like, look, you can boost mental health care and you see not only benefits in mental health, but other sides too, including juvenile arrests. And I should emphasize here that there are like other studies backing this up from Deza and other authors. Like, fine, like, look, if you increase mental health care, there there is lower crime as a result. I'm
1: working on a piece sort of semi-related to this on cognitive behavioral therapy, a, a specific kind of mental health care as sort of an effective intervention, especially in in developing countries, that there's been a lot of surprisingly strong findings in terms of people sort of earning more money, getting more assets, just being happier, even in sort of group therapy situations that are are very cost-effective to provide. And one of the more relevant studies to our white paper this week is one by Chris Blattman, Julian Jamison, and Margaret Sheridan that, that did a, a cognitive behavioral therapy program in Liberia. Um, and so it was, it was specifically among about a thousand young men in Liberia, many of whom were sort of ex-combatants in the Liberian Civil War, all of whom had some kind of criminal background or, or were sort of in social networks where that was common. and. They didn't find sort of first-order results on murder or violent crime, um, or at least that's not sort of the headline finding. The, the main findings are people are much less likely to, to carry guns and much less likely to sell drugs and much likelier to start like non-drug dealing businesses. And so it's it's not exactly the same set of findings, but but it's similar. And and there've also been some positive results out of uh, a program in Chicago called Becoming a Man that's also sort of targeting young men and, and trying to do. Sort of CBT style therapy. Uh, I've had CBT therapy just as like with a therapist, and it's just sort of a, like a very useful general purpose tool that it's it's about trying to think critically about your own thought patterns and notice the ways you think about problems and sort of cognitive distortions that that are keeping you from seeing the world accurately and like cause you to sort of panic or have anxiety and being able to take a step back from your own brain and think about it rationally and then understand where your emotions are coming from and and how to control them better and that's obviously super important if you have like serious mental health problems it's also just like useful in general (laughs) um and and like I like to think that if I didn't go into therapy because I was depressed and just like went to therapy for I don't know someone paid me to for a study that I would like also have some benefits uh, from just being like more in touch with with how I think about these things. And so the weight of evidence behind that as a as a therapy and and sort of some of the evidence from Chicago and Liberia is also interesting to me and, and seems to corroborate sort of the mechanism in this paper that Herman was just laying out, just that doing that kind of therapy seems to change how people think about themselves in a way that makes them less likely to engage in really dangerous or risky or violent behaviors.
3: It's like it's worth taking a step to think about the mechanism by which disordered mental health can lead to violence. And there's like four that this paper sort of outlines. Like the first is that disordered thinking itself could impact the way you perceive other people. You could see this more threatening or you could feel more terrified in a situation that a neurotypical person may not have that fear. The second is that you might self-medicate with substances, which I mean, to be the resident Herman here, even though he's here, like it could be alcohol, which obviously can lead to, to really bad ends, but also could be just um, any other kind of substance that might put you in touch with ile- legal activity if they're not legal in your area or it's not legally prescribed to you. The third is that you're more likely to be perceived as vulnerable by people who are looking to commit some sort of crime, and you. And once you're victimized, it's possible to get into that kind of cycle of violence. And then fourthly, it's like an increased likelihood um, that a police officer might view you as a threat, or may view your um, mental illness as inherently criminal. And um, we know that there's a disproportionate amount of people who experience mental health um, difficulties in the uh, criminal justice system. So I think that that's like interesting to think about because, like, really sussing out like where that channel, which channel is really the most important one is like important for a policy response there. And then more to this paper in general, I think the interesting thing that I found um, here is that like it wasn't just access to pharmaceuticals, right? Like I assumed that like what was happening here when I first saw the abstract was people are getting in touch with doctors, some proportion of them are getting prescribed some kind of medication and then, uh, you know they're better (laughs) because they have drugs now. But A, this study is looking at people who are just not all prescribing facilities. But further, they say that we provide suggestive evidence that non-physicians appear to be more effective in reducing juvenile crime than physicians, and that this uh, finding mirrors recent studies on the general population and not just on juveniles. And that to me is like super interesting. I mean, we know that there are side effects to some of these drugs, which it might be the case even that there's like countervailing forces if you take like Prozac, which you take for depression it can cause you to be agitated um and there are other things with other medicines as well but also just to me like it really suggests what Dylan was saying is that there is like something specifically going on here potentially with the um, therapy or whatever it is that they're providing. And it could just be structure. It could be like you're going to an office, and you're talking about your feelings, and there's a human being there who's like listening to you and saying something back because this this study wasn't specifically about CBT or any any specific kind of care. It was just in general, you going to office-based care. But you know, I just thought that was interesting to me that like my, my first assumption going into this paper was like, it's going to be drugs. Drugs are great love pharmaceuticals (laughs) and that's not really what's going on here so that was interesting
2: i kind of worry when people read this kind of paper that they'll think like oh wow people with mental illness are committing lots of crimes and like to be clear that is not actually the case most people with mental illness are not going around committing crimes i mean but it is also just the the harsh reality that like mental illness can contribute to more violence and crime in some people so i mean obviously there are also different kinds of mental illnesses and like people behave in wildly different ways as a result but like i just wanted to emphasize that because you know the the criminal justice system has in some ways criminalized mental illness in in the past few decades and like that's that's not what this paper is suggesting we should do in fact it is suggesting the opposite that if you get these people mental health care the criminal justice system will actually not need to get involved at all my takeaway
1: from this as always pharmaceuticals are great shout out to lexapro shout out to wellbutrin therapy's great go to therapy <laughs> Love my therapist. You can cite me on that. The weeds loves therapy.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I I think the other thing this paper raises, though, is that obviously we've had now a national conversation for over a year and a half, I guess, about uh, redirecting government funds away from policing and more towards social services. And obviously they don't look into like, you know taking this money away from police and more towards social services. But I will say that, like, in the hullabaloo over this, uh, the most important point that kind of got lost over this debate was just that, like, yeah, increasing services social services can reduce crime because you can reduce a lot of the things that the social determinants of crime. You know, I think it's clear with healthcare. I mean, this is like we've seen this with Medicaid as well. When you have increased Medicaid expansion states like that can reduce crime as well. If you make people better off in general, like they're less likely to commit crime for a bunch of the reasons we talked about at the beginning of, of the segment and also more likely to be able to get and for themselves the kind of health care that they would need to not put themselves in a situation where they might be susceptible to being victimized or something like that. And so I don't know. I think this that's that's interesting to me cuz it's just like obviously uh not not Herman's Herman's normal take on uh these papers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I mean, I think with the defund the police thing, I, I don't know, like yeah, there are just two things that don't add add up for me. One is that like there is research showing that like more police officers reduce crime, so there's like, you know, the question of why don't we do both? Uh like if if we want a safer society, why don't we find ways to reasonably increase like Our police force, while making sure they're being used in the right way, being held accountable, not harassing people, not being racist, and, you know, funding these social services, it is certainly, like, you know, the, the federal government has thrown a lot of money out there in the past few years. Surely, it could afford to spend more on both these kinds of services. The other thing that just has really never made sense, and I think it's a huge problem for the defund the police as a concept, is... The funding mechanisms here is just just would not make sense. Like most city budgets do not cover in any significant way health care and mental health care in particular that's usually handled at the county level, state level, or federal level. And that's just as practical implications. Like if a city cuts its police department and creates a new mental health department, is that new mental health department going to be effective to begin with? like I don't know because another aspect of this is chances are cutting the police department like by 20% 50% or even just eliminating it if if that's how far you're willing to go that probably would not be enough money to offer serious mental health care to people like this is a big problem it's like these social services can be really expensive I think they're worth the cost but when we're looking at like policing budgets I don't think they would cover the full cost of like the kind of investment that society as a whole needs to really bring down crime. So, you know, it's not that, like, I'm, like, saying that the status quo policing is great and we should keep it. Absolutely not. But it is, I think there are just big questions about, like, whether that's the right avenue to actually increase social services. And at the end of the day, I'm just not convinced you even need to defund the police to begin with to actually afford these other things. It seems like something that federal, state, county governments could be doing regardless of that.
3: Well, I didn't mean to kick off a whole other podcast, but I'll just <laughs> say one thing, which is just that I think that the um, this kind of paper to me indicates, though, it's like it's like a way of thinking about what an ideal world would look like. Yes. I think for some people, an ideal world would look like there would always be police there. And likely there's going to be some level of crime, of course, regardless of what society you've been able to construct is. But... If the question is, like, if we can get to the level of crime where we have provided everyone the social services necessary in order to, like, be in a position not to have contact with uh, negative forces social forces and also have, like, the health care, et cetera, needed, like, and also if you're that person and you believe that the police cannot be reformed due to... I don't know, decades of evidence of them not being able to be reformed, then I do think that there's, like, something to be said there. But this is an entire podcast, and we should not get into it over an hour. into
2: it. Well, no, I I, I just want to push back because, like, one thing you said there is interesting to me. Like, the way you described it is, like, you increase the social services, and then society becomes safe enough to reduce police presence and i i feel like this has been something that's always tripped me up with defund the police Is like in some ways it's backwards you don't cut police and then fund social services and things will be great you boost social services society will be much safer in the long term i think because of that and then you can reduce police presence but like you know that that's not really how it's been described over the past year and a half. I know this is like a whole other podcast, and I
3: well, you heard it here first, folks. Herman said he wants to eventually defund the police. <laughs> that's it. That's the show.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I I am going to wrap up this show that I've completely lost control <laughs> over, and that has spiraled out of control into being about defunding the police, uh, and say that that is all for us today. Thanks to Vox's Ramón Lopez and Jerusalem Dempsey for having me on their podcast. <laughs> our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts, and I'm your host, and name only, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more Weeds content by signing up for our newsletter. Go to Vox.com/WeedsLetter. We are going to be back in your feeds this Friday with Chai Ching Huang. She's one of my favorite tax experts, and we're going to be talking all about the Build Back Better plan and how it's going to change the tax code. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.